Welcome to the Ad Aster podcast. Uh, today we have with us Professor Jonathan Green of the University of North Dakota. Welcome. Nice to be here. And one of our um, one of your main works that we have consulted in the past and and, and quoted uh, uh, repeatedly repeatedly <laughs> is your printing and prophecy of course, mm -hmm. which deals a lot with the, well, with an important topic, which is the impact of, of the printing on not only prophetical texts, but of course, mm -hmm. uh, astrological texts as well. Um, mm -hmm. um, so we would like to begin to ask you, how, how did you get to in, into this research? How did this book result? How it came mm -hmm. to be? Mm. Um, yeah, so... Uh, you know, I should have asked, uh, I, I believe both of you are past your PhD stage of your careers at, at this point, or still working on it, or? I'm still working on it. <laughs> okay. I have survived my PhD. I'm a survivor. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, the, the process for me was, you know, I, I had a, a master's thesis on uh, Hildegard of Bingen, a prophetic figure of the Middle Ages. And then for my dissertation, I did a, uh, a, a dissertation on early printing on the 1493 Nuremberg Chronicle. And then I got to a stage of my career where I, I was in my first academic position and I uh, was my own advisor, so to speak. And I had to figure out what do I work on now? Uh, and there was, there was no one directing me at that point. And so I thought, well, I've done uh, a, this prophetic figure and I've done early printing. So how about let's do early printed prophecies? I wonder if there's anything to, uh, to say. And when I came up with the idea, I had no idea if there was actually any text, anything printed. Um, and then fortunately, as a, the, the reason that I, uh, and the reason I needed a, a topic at this point about a, a year or two after my uh, dissertation is, um, uh, uh, someone who I'd worked with closely, Ursula Rautenberg at the Universität Erlangen, um, had mm -hmm. invited me to apply for a fellowship to, to do some research there. And it, it was a great opportunity. I just needed an idea. Um, so then I started looking, is there anything actually relevant, anything that's, that's printed? And it turns out there, there's a, a ton of material. Um, you know, most obviously the, what perhaps is the earliest known printed book of them all, or is certainly one of the earliest in the vernacular, mm -hmm. it was Gutenberg's, uh, what's known today as the Sibyl's Prophecy, mm -hmm. uh, this medieval prophetic work. And uh, then there were uh, a number of others. And once I started uh, tracking down titles and editions, I found I have a great amount of mater material to work with. Uh, although the, the one, decision I, I made, uh, what I told myself at the time is, I'm only going to be working with prophetic stuff, none of this astrological nonsense. I'm going yeah, to avoid I remember that. You said that in the email, yes. <laughs> yes, I remember you said that in the email, and it made me very curious, how did you, after this beginning, how did you get there? <laughs> um, because I quickly found it was absolutely impossible to neatly separate <laughs> prophecy, from astrology, yeah. from apocalypticism, and all of these other topics that I thought I was going to ignore. 
and then proved to be completely impossible to ignore uh, because there's so much of what, you know, you, I, I thought I'd found just a nice prophetic text, but you look at, you know, just under the surface a little bit and it's all based or the text is pulled from some astrological work. Uh, I mean, the clearest example is uh, Johannes Lichtenberger. I mean, his, his compilation of prophetic texts, his Pognosticatio, I mean, it uh, appears in Germany first, but then it's uh, very popular in Italy and uh, published in France as well. And, uh, you know, about probably the majority of his sources are, are drawing from comet tracts and other astrological prognostications. And once you start looking into the actual astrological works, you find that they are not staying on their side of the line either. Um, you know, the, the, the best example of this, uh, you know, the, I believe it's the 1499 ephemerides, ephemerides of um, Johannes Stoffler and Jakob Plaum. Um, it's, it looks like just a boring astronomical reference work, perfectly academic and scientific, but uh, for the year 1524, they make this note, well, there's lots of conjunctions and this portends great changes. And it, they're actually drawing on the language of uh, Matthew chapter 24, a very apocalyptic chapter of the New Testament. And then it goes on to inspire this wave of, yes, you're familiar with it. Yes, The yeah. madness of 1524. <laughs> yes. Yes. And then it turned out to be a very dry um, here, a dry winter or something. <laughs> Right. The, of course, you know, the, the thing about, uh, you know, uh, astronomical handbooks may or may not be correct, but prophecies never fail. Mm -hmm. And so what, what I thought was so interesting is, you know, looking at the, at the literature, but, you know, a lot of people have observed that, um, you know, the, this flood of 1524 didn't happen. But if you looked at who ended up eating their words, so to speak, it wasn't the people who were the most alarmist about it. Uh, you know, you find examples of a few of the people who had said, no, no, nothing to be concerned about, nothing can go wrong, end up saying a few years after the fact, um, well, um, oh, now I'm going to have to look up the exact quote from, but the, the, they're much more modest in their, yes. uh, uh, right. The, the, the people who were most alarmist, you know, Carion and Beardon, people like that, they go on to uh, great careers yeah. just because events of the 1520s were so stormy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. They just don't care. They, they will go on being alarmist. It is <clears throat> for other reasons. <laughs> they, they will find new reasons for being alarmist. Mm -hmm. uh, the more moderate people, they are normally not so much... Um, accepted <laughs> when it comes to prophecy right well and then in the in a way it's the it's the times that create the market rather than the market that create the the, the times um uh, because you know just about any time period you look at there's someone saying the world is ending yes. and uh but it's only you know really in the 15, 20, plus or minus a few years when there was suddenly this huge market for people, because people felt like people could see the world ending around them. 
in some in, in some significant ways. There was a you know a new emperor and dramatic change in religion and uh, Turkish armies encroaching on the core of Europe. Um, I, you know, that's in, in a lot of ways, people could say, I have this idea of, of the apocalypse and it's happening right now, there and there and there. And so I guess they, they can be forgiven for being a bit alarmed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we have forgiven them already. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, and um, do you think, um, or what's your view on all this reaction to the 1554 mm -hmm. prediction? Do you think, well, I, I, I'm sure it did, but do you think it had a big um, impact on the prohibitions that you then see appearing after in the index uh, of 64 mm -hmm. and then the, 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 the papal bull uh, of 86? Um, do you think that was one particular contributor for that kind of prohibition, that, that kind of regulation? Um, well, let's see. So I, I guess I need to explain where my, where my perspective is. Cause I, I you know, I, I've noticed, uh, I mean, when, as scholars, we all have places maybe unconsciously where we're, where we place ourselves. Um, and then we don't really realize that we've done this until we see how someone has, has done this. Um, and like, I saw this, I, I first recognized this when I was writing about you know, some of the Holy Roman emperors and imperial history, um, and then comparing what I had written with what Darren Hayton had, had written, mm -hmm. um, uh, looking at the same time period, but uh, his perspective was coming out of Vienna. And I was thinking in terms of Nuremberg, not too far from Erlangen where I was working. Mm -hmm. um, and then looking, also looking at work written from a Dutch perspective, where the emperors were the, the antichrist, literally. Um, and so my, my perspective uh, is, I think, closer to, to bottom up than top down. So um, also, it's much a, a very German perspective. So what shows up on the index or, or what the what the Pope is, is decreeing at one point, I, I guess I, I take no notice of it because the people I'm looking at aren't really noticing it. Mm -hmm. and, and so when I'm looking at what, what's getting published at this time period and on into the 17th century, nothing changes. Mm -hmm. uh, the same astrological prognostications, uh, the same prophecies. Uh, in some cases, it's not just the same type, it's the same text that keeps going well into the 17th century. Uh, I guess one thing I discovered was uh, never say that anything stops at any point in time because there's always some later document you haven't looked at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And sometimes they, they pick one prophecy uh, mm -hmm. related to a specific astrological configuration and mm -hmm. they adapt it to another configuration. I have mm -hmm. seen that several times. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, Recycling yeah. of material. Yeah, recycling. Yes, <clears throat> yes. I, it's so easy just to add an extra C or an extra X or something to a date. And you can see it's clearly the same prophecy. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, look at, uh, you know, Robert Lerner's work on the Cedar of Lebanon prophecy, for example. I mean, that's high Middle Ages, early Middle Ages, or high Middle Ages. Um, 
with a with this astrological coloring to it, talking about a conjunction of all seven planets, and if in some cases the same text, in other cases the same motifs, they continue on throughout the the, the period. Um, or I guess one of my one of my follow-up works to Printing and Prophecy uh, was uh, the strange and terrible visions of Wilhelm Fries. I, after Printing and Prophecy, I thought, well, I, I need a new book. I need to write something. I think I'll write an article about uh, whatever uh, astrological or whatever prophetic tract has the most editions in Germany that I haven't looked at yet. So I tied up editions and found this Wilhelm Fries tract, tract which uh, appears in a couple different versions and dozens of editions between 1550 and then into the sixth, 17th, 18th century. Um, and I discovered first, um, it was actually just a version of um, Rupasissa, Johannes de Rupasissa from the 14th century, um, which, you know, he had seemed to be a, a huge hole. Uh, there, you know, I was wondering why doesn't he show up in the 15th century or 16th century in print. Well, it's because his name changes um, and this tract gets published instead. And then there's a rejoinder, um, still under the name of Wilhelm Fries, but a, a, a different text, except that one is the one that, that has the, the astrological metaphors and, and symbolism. Mm. Um, so I think I've gotten pretty far away from the original question you asked. No, no, it is interesting. It's not, we are not following like a, a strict guide. Yeah. We just want to know uh, what is your research in this area mm -hmm. and what kind of steps you have taken. Mm -hmm. uh, ah, okay. Area, that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But coming back to, 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 to the question, uh, it uh -huh. has to that because um, what I've observed and I'm working a little bit uh, later in the 16th century and uh, mm -hmm. 17th century mm -hmm. and you can see from from that distance that there is indeed uh even in the astrological literature there's a reaction i would mm -hmm. say in one hand uh, towards pico de la mirandola's text which is lately mm -hmm. yeah, the very mm -hmm. end of the, of the 15th century so mm -hmm. there's a, a counter reaction very strong counter reaction and then mm -hmm. you have uh the prohibitions and mm -hmm. prohibitions and all the discussion is always on bad practices of astrology, which, of course, as you said very well, go on and on and on. Completely ignored. <laughs> Completely, <normally>. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. But I think the, the, a lot of the reaction of prohibition um, and even a sort of a counter reaction of the astrologers themselves to, to rectify and, and to, to create a proper way proper academic way of practicing astrology seem to be a reaction against this um, uh, this excess of predictions, especially in a very popular mm -hmm. level with the almanacs. Mm -hmm. that, that was mm -hmm. the reason I, I asked you this. Uh, okay. Yeah, and I guess uh, as far as that goes, Wilhelm Fries is a really interesting example uh, because I, well, what I start off with uh, what I what I was starting off with was the German editions in which uh, Wilhelm Fries is supposed to be a uh, recently deceased man in, in Maastricht, mm -hmm. um, where this prophecy is found with him after his death, um, and then in a German context, it's, it comes across as kind of a pro-imperial, pro-Holy Roman Emperor 
a fairly conservative outlook. I mean, it's, you know, the, the emperor will be this end time figure who will conquer his enemies and reconquer the Holy Land. Uh, nothing too surprising. Uh, but when I started looking backwards, um, I discovered there was actually a, a history in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. um, th there was a, th there were some of these astrological predictions, uh, you know, annual uh, tracts by a Wilhelm Fries. And, you know, on the surface, they looked like kind of, kind of typical booklets, but uh, if you dug under the surface, uh, they seemed uh, the quite radical uh, anti-Holy Roman Empire in outlook. Um, and it was hard to confirm, am, am I just seeing this or is this really how they were understood? Were these, were these tracts used as, uh, you know, anti-imperial agitation? Um, and then in, in 1557, uh, the actual, what seems to be the first print of the text I was looking at appears, um, there, there, there was actually a, a Dutch printer who, uh, who printed it and ends up getting beheaded um, mm. for, for the publication. So I, I, I think maybe the connection I'm seeing was, was there. Mm. Um, and I believe it's Franz Frauden. And you know, fortunately we have some, some of the documents, some of the documents that have survived um, and uh, and here he was accused of, of publishing uh, radical works, publishing, uh, you know, works that uh, leading to insurrection. Um, and here he attributes, so we have this, you know, it's a 14th century Latin text, um, which has gone through uh, uh, translation into French. And then at some point it answer, it's published in Dutch um, as an anti-imperial tract. And then by the time it shows up in Germany, it's become a pro-imperial tract. Um, yeah, and, and uh, supposedly attributed to this, this dead Dutch astrologer. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot more going on with those prohibitions with the index mm -hmm. uh, than you think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, we yeah, were talking yeah. about the advent of press in uh, mm -hmm. its impact in political um, political traits, so to say, mm -hmm. but also in uh, personal uh, kind of personal wars among astrologers. We have a very mm -hmm. curious example here in in uh, Lisbon mm -hmm. of two. Uh, one was a publisher, and the other one was a proper astrologer. But mm -hmm. for some reason, they were at odds, and mm -hmm. so they published um, like predictions mm -hmm. and then the other one would publish a prediction contradicting and correcting mm -hmm. and saying things that uh, without saying the name but really directed at the other one and then the other one would reply yes. so printing was and also I, a way of <laughs> if i recall correctly <laughs> accusing the other to, to steal predictions that they oh, have yeah. made and, and, and mm -hmm. have exchange for and all for this, some years all this in print <clears throat> therefore mm -hmm. it was not a manuscript Therefore, it had much more impact mm -hmm. in the reading uh, society. So um, it, it somehow amplified their conflict. It's mm -hmm. very, very interesting. I don't know if you have some kind of example. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, several examples come to mind. Um, I mean, one of the early ones is uh, Paul von Middelberg. Uh, I, 
originally Dutch, but active in, in Italy in the later 15th century. And he's kind of uh, the bad boy of uh, astrologers in the time period. And so the, the last leaf or so of his annual prognostications, he would pose math problems to other astrologers that he said would be too difficult for them to solve. <laughs> And then come back a year later and solve them, um, <laughs> just to illustrate his superiority. And then he, of course, shows up again as a grouchy old man in 1524 and says that, you know, he's being misrepresented. Um, and so we have that level of competition among astrologers. And then again, especially between uh, astrologers and, and printers, uh, um, you know, so there's this I call it the, the, the I ended up calling it the, the practica, the, this annual prognostication, this, this very stereotyped genre, I think it is, a, a booklet. And one of the really interesting things I, I saw in there was uh, using uh, the, the planet children uh, as a way to uh, split up society and then predict how their fortunes would be for the coming year. And uh, one of the things going on there is, well, where are printers? And uh, printers, I, I think, are eager to see themselves as uh, children of Mercury, scholars and merchants. Yeah. Uh, although there, I've noticed there were some astrologers who classified them as children of Venus uh, with mere entertainers. Oh, oh I see. Interesting. And, and then, uh, you know, of course, Johann Carion, uh, who's uh, very young in you know, 1520, 1524, as, you know, he's the new... Uh, Wunderkind of astrology. Um, and uh, he's kind of the su successor in some ways to Johannes Wierdung. Um, and when he, so when, when Karyon comes on the, the scene, um, he has this multi-year prognostication, uh, which becomes very popular, goes through many editions. Uh, and when he gets around to the, this, you know, kind of a revised edition, he complains uh, and accuses the, the printers uh, uh, of a number of things, of uh, stealing his work, of uh, slapping a, uh, a, a sensational title page on uh, prognostications and alarming people, of misusing the, the terminology altogether. Uh, so he's another case where he thinks that the printers are ruining everything. <laughs> yeah, this seems very contemporary, actually. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Uh, you can draw lots of uh, parallels between the the media of early print and, and what we see today. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And the complaints that they do, like they, yeah. they being alarmist and everything. Very mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah, <laughs> and the way I was thinking about social media nowadays, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all all the voices that that mm -hmm. suddenly are heard on social mm -hmm. media yeah, and then mm -hmm. that time we're seeing all the voices that get printed and so are, are mm -hmm. for the first time and yeah. even in technical aspects like the tables the mathematical tables for calculating mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. ones that were printed and mainly the ones that were printed first were in general terms the, the ones that were more popular or more well known so mm -hmm. printing was well, it's like what internet is today, I would say. Don't you think? <laughs> well, it starts to it starts to uh, anticipate some of the same phenomena. Uh, you know, and on the one hand, you know, you could say, well, 
you know, a printer is a merchant and he has uh, lots of expensive equipment. Uh, mm -hmm. And that makes uh, printing, uh, that, that gives a, a government leverage over a printer. Um, you can forbid a printer to distribute whatever work has been published and uh, that printer is going to take a huge economic loss. And, and so in some ways it's much easier uh, to censor print than it is to censor manuscript. And, uh, you know, with manuscript, you don't have to worry quite as much about who's uh, getting, a, getting their hands on the material because it's so limited. It's just, you know, manuscripts. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas print can, can spread things very broadly. But on the other hand, well, print can spread things very broadly. And um, eventually you have enough presses operating in enough places that, uh, popular literature can become a problem. Um, you know, there's, I'm, I don't know if I can cite a case of this off the top of my head, but I'm absolutely certain that some of the very same prophecies that circulate as popular tracts have already shown up on today's social media in complete earnest. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. At the at the very least, um, you know some of the some of the prophecies I, I I've looked at have gone as you know into the 19th century, mm -hmm. and it wouldn't surprise me if somebody has updated any of them for the 21st because you know it's only a couple centuries. That's it's not a big leap as far as prophecies go. Yeah. And and are, there are recurring themes that always pop yeah. up. Well, yes. Very yeah, popular. Exactly. Every two yeah. years, it comes yeah. another apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. right. Well, well, and that's part of the psychology of it. Is you know, uh, I, I one of the one of the projects I'm currently doing is looking into this motif of, of finding a prophecy in an old book in a library somewhere, or hidden in a box, or buried in a chest somewhere, mm -hmm. um, which is something that you know Johannes Verdung he complains about in. 1537, he says, you know, I am a scientific, rational astronomer, astronomer offering these predictions, and, and I'm competing with these, uh, you know, silly, you know, women seeing visions and old manuscripts found in a stone wall, and uh, these are not credible sources. Um, but then this, this motif of finding finding a prophecy in a, in a, in a book somewhere, uh, it, it continues again on for centuries. And that absolutely does continue up to the present. And, and, and I guess that's that part of the reality of this is you can go to libraries and you can find old books and you can find old prophecies in them. Um, I mean, we do this, you know, as academics, as scholars, it's, it's part of what we do, but uh, it's absolutely the case that if, uh, with the right mindset, if you, come across some old manuscript, you can say, oh, that describes the, the world of today. It describes the world I'm seeing. This must be a prophecy. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, again, sometimes the, the, these texts get, get, get lucky and the ones that get copied again and again are the ones that, you know, they, they came true in some, in some way. You know, probably resonate the most intensely with yes. what's happening at the period, yeah. Yes. It's quite, yeah, it's quite interesting. This research, continuous research and recycling of prophecy, yeah. Uh, yeah. especially that prophecy that hits the, the mark. Mm -hmm. 
of people's expectations, of human expectations. Right. Yeah. So that's why I said that, you know, prophecies never fail. You just have to wait long enough and <laughs> maybe, you know, pen in an extra, an extra hundred years, 20 years, whatever it takes to, to get the dates right. But wait long enough and, and you'll be correct. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's a yeah. reassuring thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And um, now moving a bit on to the, the history of astrology and the impact yeah. of the press in astrology. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you, I don't want to do a very directive question, so I will ask mm -hmm. you first, uh, okay. what do you think in your view, in your research, mm -hmm. in your, in your research what is the, the, the largest impact of the printing in astrology, the practice of astrology and the way astrology flows to society? Oh, yeah, it has, uh, it, I, you know, there's about three big things that I come up with off the top of my head. Um, I'll probably forget two of them by the time I finish, but, um, um, well, first off, it makes the standard reference works that every astrologer needs widely available, widely accessible. Um, and we see this beginning uh, with Erhard, Erhard Ratbult, uh, working uh, first in Italy, but principally in Augsburg, mm -hmm. um, where he, he starts producing these mathematical works, these astronomical works that had never been printed before. And suddenly everybody has everything they need um, in the, the calendar of uh, Regio Montanus and then in the in his interpretive works to start offering their own prognostications. And that's another common complaint in the 15th, 16th century that these aren't real astrologers who are, are writing these things. It's just someone who's gotten a hold of the, of the almanac and is, yeah. doesn't really know what they're doing. Um, so it broadens the tool, print broadens the tools uh, that people need. Um, another big impact um, is with the, the popular um, astrological works, the, the, the prognostications, the, the practicas, uh, it, it creates a market. And very, very quickly, that market shifts to the vernacular, um, much earlier than most other genres. I mean, already in the 15th century, that is largely a vernacular market. Um, and it not only creates the market, but it creates forces to standardize the genre. Uh, if you look at the, the manuscript prognostications or the, the earliest ones in the 1470s, 1480s, um, they, they appear almost chaotic. I mean, these are, are, even the printed works, you would think they would have some formula at this point for chapter headings or titles. Uh, they don't. It, it's still very much up in the air. You get to the 1490s and it's all being codified. I mean, not just uh, chapter divisions uh, and terminology, but just even basics like how do you divide subsections? How do you divide one paragraph from another? All of that, there's this pressure to codify things, make it accessible and comprehensible uh, to a wide variety of readers, kind of do some of the steps of reading for them, and that starts creating a genre. Um, I think that was two things, so that's farther than I was expecting to get. Um, um, I'll think of a third thing, you know, later tonight. <laughs> It'll come. Yes, yes. 
Yeah, yeah. I think you, you. I think you said the, the two. I think are most impactful, which is the availability of tools, sources, um, and all the material for anyone who knows how to read and a little bit of mathematics to produce astrological work as well. And then again, the, the creation of a, a, a widespread popular genre of astrology, which didn't have that much uh, presence in manuscript form. Mm-hmm. Was there, but not not in the same level. Mm-hmm. And this, in turn, contributed to this uh, kind of a simplification of astrology because people were not the people who were printing. In most cases, they were, as you said, not astrologers. Some of them, mm-hmm. so they would, they would simplify things a bit. So it, it mm-hmm. would also contribute to for a more uh, simplified form of astrology and mm-hmm. specific focused on predictions, sometimes very um, bombastic predictions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is also very interesting. Yeah, well, and, and what's interesting is that we can see kind of the seeds of this already in the very earliest fragments, the very earliest traces we have of printing. I mean, from Gutenberg, we have the, uh, the astronomical calendar. Uh, I believe it's also known as the Laxia calendar. It's think primarily known today as the um, astronomical calendar for 1448. Uh, So in some cases, it was uh, uh, an older calendar. uh, And that some of the original work on it had dated it then um, earlier. Um, Today, it's dated a a bit later. So um, I'd have to look up the research. But the realization was that with this work and it, even though it's an er, for an earlier year it could be updated it could be used by an amateur astrologer uh, to create predictions for future years so even in our very earliest fragments of printing we had this movement towards broadening access to tools and to prediction yeah. yes yeah. 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 wanted to ask Oh, I have something here uh, that uh, when I was uh, researching about your work, it's mm-hmm. the first Copernican astrologer. Oh, right. Andrea Faber, And I found it very interesting. Could you just quickly say a word about this? Um, yes. Um, that was the project where I destroyed tens of thousands of dollars worth of economic value. Mm. Um, I, uh, while I was working on some other project. Um, I, I looking up, I, and I forget the, I, I was looking up um, as many other works as I could find by, by some, uh, by one of these astrologers. And I came across an auction catalog. This was uh, you know, about, uh, about 10 years ago. It was, it was a, an auction catalog uh, that had one of these practices listed for sale for like $75,000. Um, and you know, this is a, this is an eight-leaf booklet. I mean, yes, it's the 16th century, but it's I didn't see it being quite as that valuable. Uh, but the justification was uh, was that it was the earliest known work in the vernacular to name Copernicus. Mm. Like, oh, okay, 1548. But wait, didn't I come across his name somewhere else? And so I started digging into my notes, and I found that in fact, uh, when I had been uh, um, working in Coburg in the Landesbibliothek, the, you know, the state library there, um, I had looked at one of these 
annual prognostications and uh, the uh, from Andreas Arifaber and uh, the the preface had had discussed Copernicus. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Um, so um, I, I feel bad, but in a way, I, I undermined the entire economic value of this uh, poor auction auctioneer's priceless work. Um, in any case, I discovered actually this was, I think the, the one was 1548, but here from Auri Faber was 1541, where already he was uh, discussing um, discussing Copernicus. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and that's, I mean, that's interesting because, you know, this is like the first new document about Copernicus to show up in, in quite a while. So I thought that was, that was worth putting in context and, uh, you know, at least publishing the parts that discussed Copernicus. Um, and so, you know, very interesting. And then, of course, uh, as a follow-up, then, you know, Rich Kramer, Rich Kramer at Dartmouth, who actually knows the historical techniques. And if you haven't talked to him, you absolutely should I talk to him. him. Yeah. I know him, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, he, we, we've, we've discussed various questions and collaborated on things here and there. Uh, anyway, he came along to do the actual heavy lifting of seeing to what extent did uh, Ari Faber use Copernicus. And I believe he came to the conclusion that, well, he's, he's mentioning Copernicus, but uh, isn't quite using him in a, a historical technique sense yet. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's just an example of there, there's, there still are all kinds of things, uh, all kinds of surprises to be found in the libraries and archives if you start looking at some of these strange little astrological tracts. Yeah, that's yeah, true. That's true. But, but it's yeah. still interesting that he is mentioning Copernicus anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and then he, then he played a role in, uh, in the publication of, of the main work of Copernicus as well. Hmm. Yeah, that, that makes us think that um, they, they, they didn't see it as uh, incompatible. It's just another idea. Right. Um, and that was, uh, there were different approaches to, to Copernicus. I, in fact, it's become irritating to me today how often we see references to the Copernican revolution and how it left people feeling decentered and alienated and no, <laughs> no, I can't. No, not really, not at all. Um, you know, some people just treated it as well. It's a, it's a nice mathematical model, even with the Earth at the center of the universe. And um, the, the thing is, people have a tremendous capacity to integrate new knowledge into their existing models. And you know, this this went on for decades, and there wasn't a sudden moment where everybody felt centered and alienated no they, they did just fine <laughs> yeah i think that's a much much later phenomenon i if, said so. if ever yeah. if ever yeah, yeah. Mm. i think people were like okay life goes on and i think also that copernicus um publication was so complex mm -hmm. so mathematically complex that mm -hmm. it was not for the, the general public it was for mathematicians mm -hmm. so well they, they wouldn't it wouldn't have this huge impact in everyday life it's much more like a mathematical problem as you said mm -hmm. so yeah, no, i don't feel that people were completely 
alienated or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Right. And and the you know the then the ideas they get filtered to I mean they get get filtered down to people but again that filter makes things compatible comprehensible for them. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, and what you said earlier that uh, there are still these little informations that we can come across in an archive mm-hmm. even in a printed uh, edition or mm-hmm. even manuscript which is mm-hmm. uh, I think one of the main drives of research uh, mm-hmm. which is to read these texts which mm-hmm. sometimes are quoted cited that they are they, they circulate they are known but I think mm-hmm. sometimes people didn't read them close enough to spot these little um, treasures uh, in, in them. And I mm-hmm. think that happens a lot. And I've came across that a lot of times. People reference the works and you would think for, from the point of view of a, a PhD researcher, oh, that's already studied. People have already identified the text. And then you go and see and not at all. They haven't read it. And then suddenly you start reading it and it, things pop up that are... Mm-hmm much value to, to, to research and to further research. Yeah, yeah. well, even as scholars, um, we are liable to have you know, accepted wisdom or something that everybody knows. Uh, um, and it's much easier to just go along with that because otherwise you have to read sometimes very long, dense works, some, sometimes only available in manuscript. Uh, some, you know, often in Latin or some awkward language in some horrible script. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, indeed. <laughs> Story of our lives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So about, um, could you tell us a little about your future uh, plans for investigation? Okay. Um, well, yes. The, so I have one project coming towards uh, coming into print, hopefully soon, um, on a well, mostly different topic. Um, uh, Howard Luthen at the University of Minnesota. He uh, approached me a few years ago and said, "You know what we need for for teaching undergraduates? We need a translation of Maximilian's Toyodank." Uh, yeah. which was, uh, as well, uh, Toyodonk wanted his life presented as a heroic epic in the, in the, in the manner of the medieval books of heroes. And he had several courtiers who, um, uh, then composed that for him. And, um, it, so on the one hand, it's, uh, presents a you know, very interesting insight into the life of Maximilian and uh, the status of the empire and, and a lot of other interesting issues in the early 16th century. Um, on the other hand, it's like 118 chapters all about what a wonderful person Toyodank is and how he overcomes every obstacle and is victorious in every battle and is never scared, and it's awful. Uh, and it's hard to read with it without wishing that one time, at least, he would just fall off the cliff. Or, or it, there's there's very little character development. He's he's very much the same beginning, middle, and and end. Um, um, 
still fun work and, and valuable for teaching. So the, the translation is, is done and we're working on, we, we're getting the rest of the introductory material finished so we can get that uh, published soon. Um, does astrology play a role there? Um, well, the, the interesting thing is that, you know, uh, you know, of course, with Maximilian, astrology was very much a thing for him. In this particular text, it's, it's there, but it's very subtle. You have to know what you're looking for. Um, the, uh, there's, there's three principal villains. Um, and I believe it's Neidelhart, who's kind of the, the oldest and wisest, uh, at least the, the most cunning of these villains. And on a number of occasions, he shows himself to be uh, more skilled in predicting the weather than anyone else. And he's more knowledgeable of medicine than even doctors. Um, and what seems to be going on is he'll take a look at the sky. And that's kind of, it, it's not books or experience or anything else. What gives him the clues he needs is his villain so he can hatch these plots against. Uh, Toyodonk, the, the, the hero, is, um, seems to be a, a knowledge of astrology and predictions. And, and you know, he's constantly having these, these moments of, uh, of complete frustration because none of his plans are, are working even. And at one point he remarks that all of the planets must be exerting their influence on behalf of, of Toyodonk. Uh, so even in a text like that, astrology is, is it, it plays its role. It's, it's just, it's, it's not an esoteric part of, of the culture. It's, it's just kind of a matter of fact. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, and that's, I, you know, one of those surprising things that you come across is I, I remember in one astrologer or the other um, remarking at one point, well, of course, everyone knows that astrology is valid. I mean, we can see that the tides move in accordance with the phases of the moon. And, and everyone knows that uh, a horse, uh, a, a hurt horse that's left in moonlight won't recover. Hmm thinking what <laughs> that <laughs> but everybody knows this oh, really? <laughs> uh, apparently and you could you could just cite this as, as some fact that um everybody accepted mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah they, they had interesting things <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah that that that's a recurring theme that if you if you <laughs> yeah or a sick person under the moonlight would not uh, oh. recover or it would have difficulty in recover Something that pops up well, this the... is a good tip in these times <laughs> of pandemia. <laughs> That's a really good tip. Yeah. Really. Yeah. And then I guess the uh, the uh, the other upcoming project. I uh, I'm still uncertain. You know, sometimes you think it's a book, it turns into a footnote. Sometimes you think it's a footnote, it turns into a book. Where I'm I'm this is uh, working on a presentation that. Uh, should have happened in September, but we know how what has happened to all our travel plans. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, it looks like the next conference presentation, um, whenever whenever conditions permit, um, will be on the on this motif I mentioned of uh, old books, uh, mm -hmm. well prophecies and old books that are being re rediscovered, mm -hmm. and um, I. What's interesting about that is the insights that that offers in as far as a fairly normal people 
uh, and what the values they attribute to books and what they think they can find in books. And you know, what I think is so interesting about this is, uh, you know, we, you know, the um, fairly common people, people with you know, basic levels of education, um, still participate in intellectual currents. Uh, when it comes to uh, collecting books or thinking about old books. Uh, you, you know, we have a, an academic scholarly discourse and we have a kind of a wealthy, prosperous collector's discourse, but we also have this, you know, discourse of the common people where they still attribute many of the same uh, qualities and functions to old books. So that's what, what else is on the horizon. Interesting. Oh, we'll be looking forward uh, yes. for your published results. <laughs> and, and we will we will leave the links of the publish, uh, publishing that you already have uh, in the description of this podcast, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. people can know a little more of your work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And well, I think uh, we don't want to keep uh, the conversation too long. I think we I think we covered very interesting topics. Yes, very interesting yeah. topics. And thank you very much for for presenting and sharing with us. Um, oh, I've very much enjoyed the conversation and, and talking to both of you. I mean, we, we love to talk about ourselves, you know. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and interesting, the work we do. And, uh, it's always interesting. And yes. it's very, very good. Yes. Well, again, thank you very much. And we hope to see you in the future in another podcast. Okay, that'd be great. <laughs>